Well, good morning, everybody. This morning, we are continuing in our series going through the book of Acts, and so I'd like to invite you to join me in Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. If you are not familiar with where Acts is located in the Bible, if you are not familiar with the Bible at all, I uh, just want to kind of give you, some, give you a heads up that Acts is located in the New Testament. Um, when the New Testament begins, it begins with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then we get into the book of Acts from there. And so if you don't have a physical Bible with you and you would like to use one, um, know that there's one in the pew back in front of you, and uh, you can keep that if you would like, and we're going to be on page 912. Going through the book of Acts has been valuable for us on a number of fronts. Uh, first and foremost, Jesus says in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Acts is a picture of just that. Jesus is building his church and so there's history there. But as all of God's word should do, Acts also serves as a barometer for us today, particularly as a church not necessarily that we need to have the same exact practices in the same exact way, but are we about the same things? Are we like they were, as we're told in Acts 2.42, are we devoted to God's word? Are we devoted in every way to the apostles' teaching, God's word, what Jesus has taught? Are we devoted to the fellowship, which is the status that we hold, the unity that we hold, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus? Do we live that out with one another? Are we devoted to the breaking of bread, communion, the practices of the church that Jesus himself institutes? Are we devoted to prayer? Are we individuals? Are we people as a church who say we are a church who prays? We believe in the power of prayer. Do we individually and collectively pray for boldness just as they did? Two weeks ago, that's where we were um, looking in the other portion of chapter four. They prayed for boldness and what happened? They went on to speak God's word with boldness. God answered their prayer. They lived that out. So the early church, it continues to grow in the face of opposition. And we're going to pick up in chapter 4, verse 32. And what we're going to see in this first portion is Luke continu continuing to showcase some of the defining markers of the church. But he's also setting up a stark contrast for those within the church. And it's one that we are prone to miss if we just rush through Acts. So hold on to that thought. Look with me at verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many were as as many as were owners of lands or houses or lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now this might sound a little bit familiar to you because it runs parallel to what we see in Acts chapter two, verses forty-four and forty-five. We see, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, some time has passed since this portion in Acts chapter 2, but we see here in Acts 4, the church is consistent. What they were about then is what they were about now. They continue in that. What were they about 
They were about unity. Luke is showing us a picture of a group of believers who were unified on two fronts. First, they were unified spiritually. When it comes down to it, their first and foremost priority was Jesus and proclaiming the truth of his gospel. That he died for the sins of the world and that he rose three days later to prove that he has conquered over sin and death. And now, as Peter said earlier, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Just before this, they prayed that God would grant them to continue to speak the word with boldness. We're told in verse 31 that they did just that. And here in verse 33, we see in with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. So they were doing this. The gospel was at the center of all that they did. So they were unified spiritually, but they were also unified materially. In other words, in their generosity. Now, passages like this tend to make us a little bit nervous. One, because it deals with money and possessions, both of which are toward the top of the list of things that we are most prone to make idols in our lives. An idol is anything that we cherish higher than we do God, something that we love more than God, that we depend on more than God. That is an idol. We can make anything an idol. And money and wealth and possessions, something that we are most prone to making our idols. And it's for this reason that God has a lot to say about money all throughout the Bible. 1 Timothy 6.10 says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. Not that money is the root of all kinds of evils, the love of money, our posture towards it, how we view it and depend on it. This also might make us a little bit nervous because we look at this passage, we look at what we see in Acts chapter two, and, and maybe what we see is some form of socialism. We look and we say, wait, wait a second, what's going on? No one owned anything and they sold their possessions and everyone got equal distribution? No, I, can, I, can, I am pleased to report that Socialism is not here. There is nothing here at all that says this is socialism of any way, shape, or form. We are actually told in this passage that they owned possessions. The very fact that they were selling property, well, the property would have had to be in their name. It's that they didn't recognize the possessions as their own. It's a posture of the heart that they had towards their stuff. They still owned it. They just held it loosely. And we also see here that the, dis the distribution, what was given, is only being given to those who are in need. It's not that everyone sold everything they own, pulled it together, and said, all right, everyone gets an equal share. Only those who had a need were given what it is that they needed. And it wasn't even equal to, because everyone had different needs. And so they were given according to their needs. So this is not in any way, shape, or form socialism. What it is, is a biblical understanding of stewardship. We are managers. We are managers, not owners of everything that we have. We are managers and not owners. The money that we make, no matter how large, no matter how small, belongs to God. Deuteronomy 8.18 says, You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you your power to get wealth. Not only does it belong to him, but it comes from him. 
James 1.17 says every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from above, which means our car, our house, our phone, anything that we own is given to us by God and for God. Do we view our money and possessions in this way? Do we see everything that we have ultimately coming from God to be used for him? Do we see these things? Do we see our role in what we have as managers, as borrowers, or do we see ourselves as owners? Because they viewed their stuff. They viewed their wealth and possessions as as being God's. They viewed their stuff that way. They didn't hold on to everything with a tight grip saying, mine. That's what a child says. Right? A child in their, their, their young age will say, mine, 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 not wanting to share, but eventually we got to grow up. We no longer view our things as our own. As we grow spiritually, we recognize these are all from him, and we have them with open hands. And we say, God, I recognize that you have given me this. I'm willing to give it back to you to the meet the needs of your people. And what we see is that some of them took some drastic measures and sold pieces of land or even their homes. And I, and I think that we need to understand that though those examples are given, and look, if you have the means to, to sell land and, and your home, I mean, whatever that looks like, great. But we have to imagine that some of them simply just took money and gave as well to meet the needs. And so we see various plans, people doing these things to, to meet the needs, And I do think there's something that's important to note about all of this in their generosity. And I'm probably going to upset someone here, but God's word has a tendency to poke us and upset us sometimes. Notice the method of how they went about collecting and distributing. They laid it at the apostles' feet. They didn't just give it to John or Peter or one individual and say, hey, you take care of this. They laid it at the apostles' feet. So there's this collective Um, There's this collective nature of this. There's an accountability in place. So we're giving to all of the apostles and you had multiple people, checks and balances here. But they laid it at the apostles' feet and then they distributed it according to the needs. There was clearly some form of structure, some form of organization here, although we're not given specifics. All that we see is the church, the people of God, trusted the church leaders, the apostles, to handle their giving. How often do we commit to give, but with the stipulation, we get to choose where it goes? How often do we say, I will give, but only if all of it goes directly to Camp Carl? I will give, but only if it goes directly to our middle school ministry. I will give only if it goes to this particular global partner. The reality is, this is not open-handed giving because we're still gripping and trying to control what we perceive to be our money. And so we believe that we have the right to determine where it ultimately ends up. Now, I recognize that some of this apprehension stems from various scandals and cases of leaders taking money from the church and misusing it. That exists. That is out there. And though the season that we're coming out of didn't stem from mishandling money, there's still a potential hesitancy to just trust leaders in the church as a whole. I understand that. Know from us that when it comes to our finances in particular, we have various checks and balances in place. 
And we are very open, and we desire to be open about every, how everything is handled and spent. That's why just a few weeks ago, we did the annual audit at the members meeting. Like, isn't, aren't you excited about the annual audit? Okay, so like, it's boring. Unless you are an accountant, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't like numbers. But here's the thing with that. We do that as a desire. We make that available if you request it because we want you to see we're not hiding anything. We're not trying to, we have accountability in place. We want you to see the way that we are spending our money. Right? That's why we make this stuff available. And despite the potential apprehension, it is also important to note that the temptation to sin and the mishandling and the abuse of money in this way was just alive back, is as alive back then as it is today. Like the apostles were not sinless in their, in, in their like They still dealt with sin. And so the temptation to mishandle money was just as alive back then as it is today. And yet you see the church faithfully giving. God will hold our leaders accountable for how they lead the church and its affairs. Vengeance is his. He is the judge. Our charge is to faithfully give because it will grow us. It's a spiritual discipline. And it will ultimately having faith and trust in the Lord that he is going to use those he has placed in authority and what we give for his glory. That is our charge. And just in case there's any questioning going on of what, Dan, why are you hitting this hard? Why are you doing this? I'm not, I'm not going on about giving and, and all that to send some subliminal message and to, to guilt you into giving more. All right, there's no ulterior motive in this. I'm just addressing what we see in the text. Although this would be a perfect opportunity to let you know that there are four ways for us to give. They're gonna come up on this. I'm, ki- I'm kidding. I'm glad. First hour laughed about it too because if we didn't laugh, that'd be probably like, oh, this is a little bit harder than we, okay, whoops. Um, we can laugh about it. It's okay, right? We're fine. This is a generous church. Um, we say, we've said that week in, week out. We don't say that to butter you up. I mean, we all collectively, this is a generous church. And that's so evident. And just even like, we, we, we just have to look at like what Saturate has done. Like just in the midst of our church planning that we gave so well and beyond, like above and beyond that. Look at the generosity project, which is what we do during Christmas time and how like there's never any envelope left in terms of giving. This is a generous church. So this is not a call of like, you guys need to give more. Um, let's just continue to be faithful in what we're doing. If the Lord prompts you to do so, by all means, but there's no ulterior motive here. So let's just keep being faithful. Let's keep being generous all the more. And so what Luke shows us here um, is that the church as a whole was unified spiritually and materially. But then he presents us with a specific example of what this looks like. Look at verse 36. Thus Joseph, who is also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Luke gives us these two verses for two reasons. First, we're introduced to Barnabas, whose actions follow the rest of the church. He sold a field, so he took property of his own. He sold it, and he laid the proceeds at the apostles' feet. Barnabas is going to play a major role in the gospel expanding throughout Acts to the ends of the earth as he partners with Paul. But the thing is, we're not going to see anything about Barnabas again until, I believe, chapter 9. So what Luke does here is he's introducing to us 
Barnabas, a major player, so to speak, a, a, a man who God used throughout Acts. But secondly, he's setting up a contrast between those in the church who are unified in their faithfulness toward God and one another, and those who are unified in their faithlessness toward God and one another. Look at what we see beginning in chapter five. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So we were just introduced to Barnabas. Here we were introduced to Ananias and Sapphira, who, who are a couple within the church. And as the rest of the church had done, they took property that they owned, sold it, and laid the proceeds at the apostles' feet. So far, so good. The difference is Barnabas gave the full amount while Ananias and Sapphira kept back some for, their, for themselves and were told that they agreed to do this. They're on the same page with this. This was a plan. Okay, so what's the big deal? Is there any place in scripture where God says that we have to give 100% of anything that we sell to the church? No, that is not the issue here. Peter pointedly tells Ananias his sin beginning in verse three. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God." So Peter confronts Ananias and he shows us what the big deal is. Ananias' error is twofold. First, lying to the spirit. How did he lie? We don't see a, a, a specific lie in here, do we? Well, it's not explicit, but it's implied that at the very least, at some point, he promised the Lord he'd give all of the money from the land that he sold. It's implied because Peter's saying, you have lied to the Spirit. In other words, somewhere, some way, we know that Ananias and Sapphira made this declaration that they were going to sell all of their proceeds. Otherwise, what's the lie? It's also very possible that they made this declaration publicly, although that was just conjecture. We don't know that. Bottom line is, the Spirit revealed to Peter that Ananias has lied about his giving. And this is not some innocent case of forgetting or maybe miscalculating giving. We're told that keeping the money back for themselves was planned. He made a promise to give, to give God all of it. And at some point after, he willingly chose not to follow through. He knowingly and willingly carried out a lie. He lied to the Spirit. And I think there's an important side note in this just to, to point out. It's not the main focus of this passage. But in verse 3, Peter says that Ananias lied to the Spirit. In verse 4, he said that he lied to God. I love that there's a parallel here. And actually, it's used interchangeably that the Spirit is used interchangeably with God. And that's because the Holy Spirit is God. Peter says this in passing, not even thinking anything of it. The Holy Spirit is not some impersonable, impersonable for, force in us. 
but a person who dwells within us, God himself dwelling with the follower of Christ. And Peter, again, that's not his focus, but he says this kind of in passing. You have, you have lied to the spirit. You have not lied to man, but to God. The spirit is God. And so his first error is lying to the spirit. But secondly, forsaking the spirit's influence. First question he asked him is, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? The word filled here carries the idea of control or influence. And it stems from the same word used in Ephesians chapter 5. When Paul says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. He says, walk carefully and be filled with the Spirit. To be filled with the Spirit means to give ourselves over to him and his influence. It means I'm not going to allow myself, in this case that Paul has given, he says, don't get drunk with wine. Don't allow this substance, something outside of the Spirit, influence your decisions, your thinking, your actions, Whatever it may be, he says, instead, give yourselves over, surrender yourselves to the Holy Spirit within you and walk according to what he desires, according to God's will. Peter makes it known that Ananias was not walking by the Spirit, but instead chose to walk the path of sin. We either walk by the flesh or gratify, or we either walk by the flesh or walk by the Spirit. What also becomes apparent in all of this, and we must point this out, is that Ananias and Sapphira were followers of Jesus. I think it's easy to look at a passage like this and say, well, they, they've acted the way that they have because they do not know Jesus. And we write this off because it makes us feel perhaps a little bit uncomfortable with what's coming next. But the reality is we know that they are followers of Jesus, there are other parts of scripture where part of the church, like they actually do things and they reveal themselves to not be truly followers of Jesus according to their actions. There are parts where we see that, but that's not the case here because you cannot lie to the spirit. You cannot be influenced by him if he is not within you. You cannot lie to the Holy Spirit. You cannot undergo his influ be influenced by him if he is not within you. And only followers of Jesus have God himself dwelling within them. So they are believers, which is important to understand in light of what happens next. Verse five. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Wait, what? Are we reading this right? Like, he tells a lie, and he dies. Like, he, that, that's, that's, that's it? Like, he lied to God and lost his life for it? Yeah. <laughs> we're not misunderstanding, it's right here. Like, we're not, misunder we're not misunderstanding this. This sin cost Ananias his life, which raises a number of questions, no doubt. But before we address those, don't, don't worry, there's more. Verse seven, 
After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things." Peter approaches Sapphira and gives her the opportunity to own her sin and repent. Did you sell the land for this much? Yes, for this much. He comes to her and gives her an opportunity to own her sin, to confess that, and ultimately to repent. But she is more committed to the lie than she is committed to being obedient to the Holy Spirit. She is more committed to the lie, and the result is the same for her as her husband, death. And in both cases, we see that great fear came upon all those who heard it. So Luke gives these two accounts back to back to give us contrasting examples of a united faithfulness and then united faithlessness. But in the case of Ananias and Sapphira's sin, the elephant in the room is, why would God do this? Like, was their sin really that bad that warranted taking their lives? It might make us question God's character. It might make us wonder, what does this mean for us? If I lie, is God gonna just drop me right there? We have some questions. So let's talk about it. Peter tells us the heart of the matter. He tells Ananias that they've lied to the Spirit and that they've agreed together to test the Spirit. This should open our eyes because to lie to God is to test God. Lying to God is testing God. Deuteronomy 6.17 says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus, he echoes and emphasizes this in Matthew chapter 4 when he's being tempted by Satan in the wilderness. Satan tempts him to test God. Hey, Jesus, put God in a position to where he's going to have to perform for you. Coerce him to do a certain action by doing this. And Jesus says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So he echoes this as well. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. How did they test the Lord? By willingly lying to him. Why is that such a big deal? Because they made the presumption that God takes sin lightly. They've presumed on his grace and on his mercy. That they've personally experienced as followers of Jesus. Like they were alive when Jesus was crucified. They know what happened here. They presumed on his mercy and grace. That they would have experienced personally that God takes sin lightly. God is loving he is gracious and he is merciful, but within all that, do we forget that he is also holy? Do we realize that God is holy? It means that he is set apart. 
It means that there is no one else. There is no thing else that is like him. There is no comparison. We can put into words and we do our best to describe who he is, but it will always fall infinitely short because he is high above it all. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. He is holy and set apart. And to recognize him as such is to rightly fear the Lord, which is the response of the people. Not being afraid of him, but ultimately seeing this is who God is, and that brings me to awe. I'm going to revere him as being exactly who he says he is. I'm gonna view him rightly. It's because of God's holiness that Uzzah in the Old Testament lost his life. The Ark of the Ark of the ark of the Lord, which is um, understood to be like is a symbolic presence of God, was being transported, albeit wrongly, to begin with. And the ox, the ox in which the ark was being carried on, began to stumble, and so the ark fell off. And Uzzah, innocently, reaches out to to grab it to prevent it from falling. Something that you and I surely would have done too. It's a reaction. And in that the moment he touched the ark, he died. Why? Because he presumed that his hands were cleaner than the dirt that it was going to fall on. He is unholy. He cannot come in contact with what is holy, the ark of God. God's holiness is why Aaron's sons, when they offered an unauthorized fire before the Lord, they, they created this fire in the censer when they were not told to do so, that fire actually consumed them and took their lives in the moment because they presumed on God's grace and presumed on his holiness. God's holiness by nature demands that sin be dealt with. And we know that ultimately sin has been dealt with and yet sin will be dealt with. Sin will be dealt with. We get a glimpse of this in Revelation chapter 20 when we're told that sin and death will ultimately be defeated. No more sin, no more tears, no more mourning, no more evil, completely eradicated from all of creation. It will be dealt with. We also know that it has been dealt with. Because we look back to the cross and we recognize, we realize, we remember that Jesus, when he died on the cross, he took the fullness of the sins of the world and that he, he took that to the grave and then he rose three days later to prove that he has conquered sin and death. So sin will be dealt with and yet sin has also been dealt with. And if we are ever tempted to think that God takes sin lightly, we need to look back at the cross. If we are ever tempted to think this is not a big deal, it was a big enough deal that he came in the flesh and died for it. We can never forget that. Because we tend to view sin as a, as a scale, as if some sins are worse than others. Now, we gotta be honest and we gotta recognize that, yes, certain sins carry more weight and practical consequences in this life. Like there are some things that if I were to sin in this way might bear less consequences than if I were to sin in this other way. That is true. But sin weighs the same on the cross. It, it bears different weight practically, but it, it, it feels the same. It weighs the same on the cross. And so Ananias and Sapphira's little white lie, yeah, it cost them their lives. 
This isn't the case of, of two people struggling in sin who we, we look at and we say, we expect you to be perfect. That's not the case because on this side of eternity, there will always be a battle with our sin nature. We will struggle. Paul himself says that in Romans 7. Like there's a struggle there. But struggling in sin is vastly different than willingly indulging it. Struggling in sin is different than willingly indulging it. These two knew the cost of their sin. They knew it had been paid for. They saw Jesus, I would imagine. They knew who he was. They knew the cost. So for them to willingly persist in sin in light of what they know is to arrogantly presume on God's grace and to minimize his holiness. So God used them as examples. In a time when the church is in its infancy, like a young child who is easily swayed one direction or another, God took what appeared to be a small flame and removed it before it became a wildfire and spread throughout the rest of the church. He dealt with the sin before it got started. He did not do this as an unjust judge, but as a loving father protecting his children. And the response of the people who were there, who heard about it and witnessed it, they didn't shake their fist at him because that's our temptation. We look back and we say, God, how, God, how could you do this? That's unjust, that's not fair. But the people who were there and witnessed it didn't do that, did they? Twice we we're told that they responded by fearing the Lord, not being afraid of him, but recognizing this is a holy God who does not take sin lightly. They responded with awe. They responded by fearing the Lord, seeing him for who he is. And as a result of continuing in unity and in the fear of the Lord, we're actually told in the next portion of scripture, 514, that more than ever believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. It didn't scare people from coming to the church. They recognized that God is holy. And so he continued to build his church. Jesus continued to build his church and his church faithfully continued following him in unity. I wonder if we look at the sin in our lives as not a big deal. Like, do we look at the sin that we would consider to have, you know, little practical consequences, like, you know, the little white lies, do we view them as small and insignificant? To do so would be to presume on God's holiness. Imagine if we all did this. Imagine if each one of us individually looked at our sin as small and insignificant. What kind of church would we be? Well, we'd be, we'd be people who are marked by disunity, self-centeredness, because that's what sin comes down to. It's all about me, not God, anyone else. We'd be marked by disunity, self-centeredness, and we would fear anything and everything else above the Lord. This isn't how God designed his church. But imagine on the flip side, if all of us took sin seriously, even the small sin in our lives, we would be a church marked by unity, being about the gospel first and foremost. We'd be marked by humility and fearing the Lord. It would transform us. It would capture the attention of a watching world just as it did for them. The Lord added to their numbers despite God's holiness being viewed, seeing that in action. Imagine if we did the same thing. The watching world would say, 
I want to be a part of that. There's something different. What if we were to do that? So we must ask ourselves, are we more like Ananias and Sapphira? Or are we more like Barnabas and the rest of the Acts church? We know which one God desires us to be. The question is, do we desire it for ourselves as individuals and collectively as a body of Christ? I want to pose a few questions for us that I believe would be beneficial to see where we are and where we're going. Some self-diagnosis. First question I would ask is, where does our influence come from? And, and any of these questions, by the way, we can actually, I think it would be appropriate first to ask them personally. Where does my influence come from? Because the bunch of, the, like the me's <laughs> make up the we, right? And so if I know where my influence comes from, I'm able to accurately say, where does our influence as a body come from? Ultimately, when it comes to following Jesus, there is no neutral. Paul says in Galatians chapter five, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. There are two paths. There's no third path and there's no neutral. We are constantly walking one direction or the other. We are either under the influence of the spirit or we are indulging our sin and ignoring the spirit's working. Which one are we? Might change from moment to moment as each step is taken. If you are walking according to the flesh, stop and turn around. Start walking by the Spirit. If you are a follower of Jesus, that is with, he is within you. You can do that. So where does my influence come from? Where does our influence come from? Secondly, do we view our sin the way that God views our sin? Do we view sin on a scale? And again, some of that's fair. We recognize that if I do this, there, there are deeper or smaller consequences than if I were to do this other thing. Yes, that is a part of it, but is that how we primarily view our sin? Do we recognize that sin always the same on the cross? How do we view it? Do we view our sin on a scale or do we view it as paid for? Do we recognize that our sin has been paid for? And because of that, we no longer have to live in bondage to our sin. We have been set free from being slaves to our sin. And now we obey Jesus in the free, and walk in the freedom that he has given us. Do we view our sin the way that God views our sin? Paid for. And then lastly, do we fear the Lord? Do I fear the Lord? This is something that I've been wrestling through more and more. And of course, as I'm studying this and thinking about God's holiness and all these different things, I'm, I'm asking the question, like, do I, do I actually fear the Lord? Or, or do I just go about my day very flippant about how I talk, how I, how I pray, how I... God is, God is holy. There's no one like him. Yes, he is a friend, but he's not my BFF. Like, we can't approach him too comfortably, He's not like my best friend that I walk up to and I dap up and I say, what's going on? What's up? He is holy. There is no one like him. There is no one in our lives that we can compare him to ultimately. They will infinitely fall short. Do we recognize them as such? So do we fear the Lord? Do I fear the Lord? Or am I afraid of consequences? Do I actually fear the Lord? 
Is that why I want to live in, in my life in a, in a holy way? He says, I am holy, therefore be holy. Am I doing that because of God's holiness and because of what he has done for me? Or is it because I'm afraid of what he'll do to me? That's not what he has for us. He wants us to respond because of what he has done for us. Not being in fear of, we need to earn something from him. We cannot earn anything from him. We cannot please him any more than he's already pleased with us now. If we would just accept Christ, do we fear the consequences? Do we fear man? Do we hold the people around us up higher? What do they think about me more than what God thinks about me? What God declares to be true about us is infinitely greater and more purposeful than anything that anyone else around us can say. Do we believe that? Do we fear man or do we fear God? Do we recognize him as holy? These are some hard questions to ask. And I think that we'd be doing ourselves a disservice if we just simply asked these questions and said, all right, let's pray and get on out of here. I actually think that we need to, to spend some time reflecting on this and then praying accordingly. You might have noticed that at the beginning of the service, we didn't take our, our set-aside prayer time to do that. And it's because we felt like it would be more appropriate to respond according to God's word in this way. And, and we're going to do that now. And so between you and the Lord, I want to I lead us through a time of prayer and I want to ask us, I want us to, to spend some time reflecting on these types of questions. Searching our hearts, saying, God, search my heart, know my thoughts. How do I view you? How do I live and, and how, how can I live accordingly? And so typically the way that we do this is we lead through a couple of different prompts and we pause, but I want to kind of give it to you all up front and, and give us some time to just spend some time reflecting and then praying just on our own, in the silence of our own hearts. And so what I would ask you to do at first is reflect on who you, knew, you know God to be. Who is God to you? Who has he shown himself to be? Do you recognize God's holiness? Do you recognize that he is faithful and just and merciful? Who do you know God to be? Spend some time just thinking about that and then responding in prayer accordingly praying to him, thanking him for who he is, recognizing that he is holy. And then would ask that you would pray in response according to what you know about him. Is there perhaps unrepentant sin in your life? Something that you have seen, this, this, is, this is small, it's not a big deal, and so it's, gonna, it's, it's gone uncared for, undealt with. You say this is not a big deal. Is there something that you would even be able to take the time to confess before the Lord? Is there a promise that you have made to the Lord, but you have left it unfulfilled? Do you just want to say, God, I desire to be holy as you've called me to? 1 John 8, 1, 8 and 9 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He is faithful. He will hear. So let's spend some time doing that. And if, if, you, if you desire to, consider writing it down in the prayer card that's in the pew back in front of you so that you would know that confidently and this could be anonymous, that it will be prayed for in the weeks to come if, you, if that's something you feel led to do. 
But let's spend some time reflecting and just praying on who God is and how we might respond accordingly. Let's do that now. And I'll close this as some time has passed. Lord, you are holy. There is no one like you. There is no thing like you. You are high above it all. You are set apart. You are perfect. You have a plan. You have a standard. God, we recognize that we fall infinitely short of that. That in and of ourselves, we can do nothing to meet the standard that you have set. That holiness, you say, I am holy, therefore be holy. We recognize that we cannot do that in of ourselves and even in the same way that you are holy. We can never be fully like you. We also recognize that that perfection that you require, we have through Jesus if we would believe in him. Thank you for being holy. Thank you for being just, but also thank you for being loving Thank you for being full of grace and mercy towards us. God, I ask you in this moment that you would help us to see that you are holy and that we would respond in fear of you, not being afraid of you, but being in awe of who you are because of what you have done and who you have created us and made us to be. Would you, by your spirit, work in us now to eradicate the sin in our lives? And that we would accept it as loving discipline from you and not see it, not misconstrue it as punishment. If we know Jesus, you desire for us to walk according to Jesus, to walk in this holiness, and by your spirit we can do that. Would we be open to his influence and not take our sin lightly? You are holy and we worship you now and we ask that that you would bring us a peace and that you would unite our hearts to worship you as you are due this worship as we do that together. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Now let's stand and respond in worship together. This has been a message from the chapel. Thanks for joining us today. For more information about the chapel or any of our campuses, including Akron, Green, Wadsworth, Kenmore, Cuyahoga Falls, Nordonia, and Medina, please go to our website at thechapel.life.